workforce and workplace norms are shaped as much by popularized portrayals as they are by our lived experiences. From sensational headlines, like The Great Resignation, to successful series, like The Office and Silicon Valley, to skits and stories shared on our social media feeds, what we see shapes what we believe. Let's go behind the scenes to discover what's new now and next in the world of work, and we'll challenge the traditions of what it means to live well and to work well. This is Success From Anywhere. Today on Success From Anywhere, we'll meet the designer turned digital nomad who's on a global quest to up anchor the nine to five grind and empower teams to set sail toward doing their best work anytime, anywhere. Tamara Sanderson is the co-founder of Remote Works and the author of a book by the same name who's navigated, get this, 70 countries, seven continents, and sailed to Antarctica. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Karen. I appreciate it. Is being in a, the same location getting boring? I mean, you you could be doing this from a sailboat somewhere, I guess. Yeah. So um, life has a funny way of switching things up on you. So as kind of mentioned in my introduction, I was a hardcore traveler. It was my primary identity. I studied abroad when I was 20, and I have that kind of cliche story of, it opened my eyes and then I saw this whole new world and I really actively pursued that after I graduated. In my mid-30s, after doing a lot of travel, I was an expat for nine years uh, in different kind of sections of my life. I got a little bit tired, felt I needed to be a bit more grounded. I took a job in Cambridge, Massachusetts and then the pandemic hit. And so that really kind of stopped me in my tracks. And so I moved into this apartment, I think three weeks before the pandemic, I just started kind of making this my new home. And so it's very like playful, as you can see, there's kind of like, I don't know, construction paper, there's a ton of books. Uh, I have like tarot cards behind me. I have a whole art section, but I really just started thinking like, what would it look like if I created a whole world in my apartment that I could explore versus always feeling like I have to explore things outside of myself. So uh, I do a lot of reading and I have a hammock outside. I have a little garden. I've been learning to cook. And so that's really captivated a lot of my interest. But it's, it's a shift. People ask me this question all the time. They're like, you own things now? Like, you don't want to go like uh, on a flight right now? I actually get a lot of anxiety flying after a couple years of being standstill here. We share that inventive nature because people asked me after so much personal and professional travel through the years, if I was struggling during the pandemic lockdown and not being able to travel. And I took up an approach of discovery similar to yours. And I imagined where I live as an all-inclusive resort. And every week on social media, I would post the adventures I was having in my all-inclusive resort using only things I owned. This could be childhood toys. This could be things other people's children have given me, crazy clothes I've inherited from relatives. Some of the more popular ones were a reenactment of the Kentucky Derby horse race, uh, a reenactment of the <laughs> Indianapolis 500 car race. But I feel like, you know, you look in the direction of imagination and asking an important question of like, what else could this be? Now, in this season of the podcast, we're talking about nine to five, and I'm asking every guest, what was your first 
paid nine to five job and for you this might be recent what was your first paid nine to five job and how did that influence your career trajectory so i had a lot of part-time jobs growing up as a kid uh, a lot of nannying and babysitting i was an umpire all of those but my first like kind of official nine to five job uh, was when I graduated the university and I wouldn't even say it was nine to five because I was a management consultant I worked like 70 hours a week. So it wasn't nine to five. It was a lot more than that um, But it did really kind of frame my mind of you know I was making this big transition as a lot of people do from college into the real world my jobs in the summer in college I was actually a camp counselor for teenagers. So a very different realm uh, no longer was I leading like chance and kind of like bringing people to the lake to like jump off of a I don't know, into like go on slides and jump into this like blob in the middle of the lake, right? So it was a very different world. But that really kind of uh, made me think a lot about commuting and how we work. So my very first project, I started at this consulting firm. I was in our Dallas office, but I was staffed on a project that was in St. George, Utah. And the project was funded by a major airline, and this was one of their regional airlines. So as a part of the project scope, we had to fly that airline, which meant that I had to go from Dallas to the airport and DFW is a huge Metroplex. So that in general took at least an hour. From there, I then had to take two connecting flights uh, at like 6 a.m. on Monday mornings uh, where I would then land in Vegas. I was the only person in a business suit. Everybody else is like having cocktails or all having fun. I remember once like I was in kind of like a, a Zara suit or something like that, you know, your first suit where I'm like, okay, cool. I'm gonna spend some of my money on this suit, but I don't have very much. So Zara it is. Um, and I remember somebody mistaking me for the uh, stewardess on the airline um, because of my suit. <laughs> so I was like, Okay, this is my life. So anyways, uh, then I would get into Vegas after these, like all these flights, we would then get a rental car and we would drive two hours to St. George, Utah. I was commuting probably 20 hours at least each week, just getting to and from the job on those sides. Then uh, within the job, we would like get up and we would start working at eight and then we would probably work um, until dinner and then we would work after dinner. So I was just like, I am working all the time and then I'm on these planes all the time. And I was like, this is awful. Like I have signed up for this and this is not how I imagined my life to be. So I thought about like, how could I make this more interesting for me? And so I um, was specializing in aerospace uh, as kind of the discipline practice. And I was like, I'm going to work for an airline somewhere cool. And so the next project I took was in El Salvador. I was working for Taka Airlines and I was like, I'm just going to take international projects going forward. At least this will make it interesting. I'm just going to stay there. I'm not going to commute back and forth every week to Dallas. So I eventually gave up my apartment in Dallas. Uh, I lived in hotels for almost two years, a very kind of like up in the air, George Clooney kind of experience. Uh, but I think from there that really kind of changed my mind on how work could work because this was 2006. It was before the iPhone. I had just a Blackberry and an IBM laptop and I, we didn't really even use the cloud that much. It was all on kind of external hard drives, but it made me realize that I could work outside of my home office. I could work internationally. I could work different hours. And so I think because that was my fun, my first experience in the work world, I never really understood the nine to five. And I've been questioning that ever since. You were ahead of the curve with your discoveries. You rejected a commute before that was a popular trend. You were working asynchronously and in different time zones. Your comments remind me of one of our guests from the first season, 
Kate Clifford. She's the chief HR officer at Accenture North America. And she talked about this concept of earning a commute. And what she meant by that is, what is the reason that you're asking people to get together in person that is so compelling that the commute is worthwhile? And I'm guessing that you are involved with a lot of organizations right now thinking about how to help them earn a commute from their employees or their customers. First of all, I love that idea of earning a commute because I have been thinking about that because there's been some pushback sometimes um, when I'm talking to people about the idea of like, it's a luxury to be able to work from home. What about all those people that actually physically need to be in an office? And I think that is a really valid point. I don't think it's necessarily an apples to apples comparison, but I think it goes back to this point of earning your commute. If you're going to require somebody to commute in every day, in a world where other that is not kind of the norm or is becoming less of a norm with you know the the surge of remote work the last couple of years do you pay people for commute or do you only you know uh have people earn a commute because there's like a reason why you should come in i really like that idea um i actually was working with a client yesterday and we had this exact conversation so it's kind of fun so i've been working with a law firm in oakland and they are moving from kind of a traditional way of working to remote and um, it's been really fun to work with them because it is kind of a traditional industry, but I think the legal work is actually very applicable to remote work because uh, you're doing a lot of things on your computer, you're doing a lot of things with written word, there's a lot of aspects for asynchronous communication, so it's actually very ripe for uh, remote work, but it is a field that's been around for a long time and it is somewhat conservative by nature. Uh, but when we were talking, I was, they were like talking about the commute and they're like, well, people used to commute three hours a day. Now they're not, but should they be giving some of that time back to the firm? And so we were having kind of like a philosophical debate by that. But I thought one of the interesting ideas that we came up with as a group was, what if you did a commute once a week, but it's a walking commute. And so if you want people to connect with the other people in the organization or think about belonging, what if you say, okay, we're gonna pair you up with somebody across this firm, get on your phone, get your dog, and we're gonna all do a corporate commute and you can walk wherever you want around your neighborhood. You get on the phone, you have kind of a meaningful conversation with somebody at work. Maybe you post a photo of where you walk to and that could be a commute that you all do together. So there's lots of ways to think about that time that you need to uh, decompartmentalize from work to kind of your personal life or what a commute is, but it doesn't need to be, I don't know, being in traffic all the time. I. I don't drive and I get really car sick. So there's a lot of kind of like negative energy that I have towards that. I also used to work at Google, which lovely buses, they try to make it as easy as possible, but I was on that highway from San Francisco to Mountain View too many times and I would get off that bus and I would be car sick and that's how I started my day. And so I have um, a lot of feelings towards commuting and I love the idea that you should earn it. And there should be a reason why you need to work, like be in person. And I am all for being in person, but make it worth it. Commutes, community, connection. I mean, the common denominator there is challenging long-standing beliefs about our relationship with work. You know, the hours that it needs to happen and to what degree an employer should be dictating that. And what I love about the example you just shared is a law firm, a traditional business that has been based on commuting and that that connection is equated with busy work and overwork and being fully consumed. And you're helping them back to the same example and question we used with your apartment, ask what else could this be? And 
I'm sure they're bumping into some limiting or long-standing beliefs. What are some of the biggest beliefs that employers and employees need to challenge to even make progress on disrupting this nine to five workday or traditional workplace? There is a concept we talk about in our book called uh, the remote state of mind. And that is all about challenging the status quo because the technology for remote work has been around for a while. Um, when I was talking to my dad about this book, as I kind of like opened his eyes to what remote work was, all of a sudden he started claiming it. He was like, Tamara, I was a remote worker in the 80s. Uh, but he's never claimed that before in his entire life. But he was like, yeah, when I like moved with Honeywell down to Texas for like a year, I was working from the house on my phone. So we've had the ability to rem work remotely before. It's not like, as long as you have some type of way to connect, you can do that. The thing is, is I think there has been a lot of like lag and it's been on the behavior side. And so changing human behaviors and what are norms. And I think there's a couple things that uh, stand in the way. So first of all, if you are a leader in an organization, however you made it up that ladder, you're gonna assume, at, rightfully so, this is very human, but that that's kind of the right way to do it, that you succeeded, that this was this is your worldview of how success is and how this organization works. And for the most part, people leading organizations have only worked in a very traditional form. Even somewhere like Google, which is considered, it was considered kind of like alternative at the time because it had a college campus and feel and it had bikes and free meals and it was very collegiate. So people were like, oh, people can wear t-shirts and they can like, juggle at lunch breaks it felt very different but still there were a lot of aspects of traditional culture there you are in person you are at work you have a clear hierarchy you have a clear promotion you know um cycle and so i do think a lot of people are having a hard time uh getting rid of like the mentality of this is the way things should be and that is very hard what you're describing is a foundation of relax and release you know, just for a moment, step back and don't feel the need to run your success playbook from the 80s or your last promotion or whatever that looks like. Relax and release into what's showing up right now, right? And get curious about this tension. And you referenced the remote mindset a moment ago. Could you tell us what that is and how do we get it? How do we get this remote mindset? Yeah. So one of the ways, um, I think it is in general, like challenging the status quo, but we go through some different steps to enable people to do this. There's a framework from journalism that I really like because it allows you to really investigate and dig holes into your current premise. And so it is called the five W's and one H. And so that is the who, what, when, where, why, and how. And so what we recommend before you even start thinking about to use Zoom or Microsoft Teams or like is Slack cool or not cool or what is this asynchronous communication? Should I have a cool Zoom background? All of those I think are uh, superfluous in certain ways to actually the core thing of why am I working this way? What am I trying to accomplish at work? How can I do this better? Like asking those fundamental questions I think actually will start opening people's minds and starting you know, asking questions, because essentially we have this really unique opportunity right now. I think historically we've kind of um, created our lives around our work. And I, I'm like a very clear example of that. I am from uh, a suburb of Dallas. 
but through different jobs that I've had, it did require me to move to different places. So if I wanted to be in tech, I moved to San Francisco. Uh, I wanted to work in Asia, I moved to Singapore. These were all things I really wanted to do, but it did make me have to change my entire life and where I live and what I do. And so I think there's something really interesting about remote work is now I can change my life to the point where um, work goes around my life and where do I want to live? And I think I made that change a lot when I moved from Google to Automatic. I liked a lot of places I've lived before, but when I joined Automatic, which was an all remote company before the pandemic and one of the largest ones, it, it owns WordPress.com, Tumblr, WooCommerce, but I actually sold everything I owned um, and I lived out of one carry-on bag for almost three years traveling the world. And so during that time I was working from Cape Town in the country of Georgia and Mexico City and it was something I had really wanted to do. And it was like the first time that I was able to like truly organize my work around what I wanted to do with my life. And before there were always a lot of stipulations. And so I love that for somebody that felt no matter what I did, I always felt a little bit hindered by work. And I was always trying to balance wanting to be a professional with this need to explore. And it allowed me to actually completely marry those two for a couple of years. Did you know that 68% of workers say a hybrid workplace is their preference? Make hybrid work for everyone with Robin. Robin is the industry-leading flexible workplace platform for connecting people with rooms, desks, and each other. We've helped companies like Peloton, Toyota, and Hulu build better workplace experiences. Plus, we integrate with the tools you already know and love. To learn more about how we make flexible work a reality, visit www.robinpowered.com. We jumped to changing the Zoom background or designing the next fun after hours activity for connection typically because it moves quicker and it feels easier, right? Which Zoom background to use or what our company colors are, yes, there might be some debate or personal preference involved. We're not getting to the underlying questions to your point, when we're solving those quick check the box items and not asking the core question of what's the work that needs to be done now, right? What are the greatest aspirations of our workforce? What are we hearing, right? So it's using what you just described as that explorer mindset to dive in deeper. And in your book, you talk about the five levels of remote autonomy. What are they and how could the folks who are listening assess where they are in your five levels of remote autonomy framework? Yeah, so the five levels of autonomy actually came from Matt Mullenweg and he wrote the foreword for our book. Uh, he is the founder, co-founder of WordPress, uh, the kind of open source community, which actually empowers 43% of the internet. People don't realize that WordPress is not just blogs, but it's like most corporate sites are on WordPress. A lot of newspapers are on WordPress. It runs so much of the internet as a content management system. Um, but the levels of autonomy come from Matt and I worked at Automatic and that really shaped a lot of my thinking about remote work. Um, although I was practicing lots of aspects of it beforehand, this was the first time I'd been at a company that had been built ground up remote first it started, um, WordPress as an organization started in 2005 of two developers that lived in different countries and it was an open source community. So all of its roots were distributed from the very beginning. Um, 
And so this was kind of a framework that Matt put out in the world around the beginning of the pandemic of these levels of autonomy. Autonomy is so important for remote work because essentially you're wanting to move towards more autonomy. And what autonomy means is that you're owning a lot more of your workflow and owning your process. And the more you can own your workflow and your own process, the more you can get out of that nine to five because it doesn't have to overlap with everybody all of the time, right? And so at the very bottom, I think, of this pyramid is kind of like no ability to be um, uh, autonomous. And so, you know, an example of this might be if you are a nanny, you cannot be autonomous with the baby, right? Like you have to be like watching the child. You have to be in the um, you have to be in the house. Maybe there's a little less autonomy if like the kid goes to sleep. Maybe you can like do a couple other things. But for the most part, like you cannot work separately because of the fact that you need to be always on. It could be the same as somebody that's a plumber. You need to be in the house with the pipes, jobs of those sorts. So that's a level where there's not that much autonomy. But as you go up into these different stages, it's allowing yourself to work at your own pace. And so you can co-work with other people, but not necessarily on their time. It does not have to be synchronous. And so as you're moving up these, you may notice, um, I think a lot of people move from a uh, kind of stage zero at a company to maybe a stage one during the pandemic or even before the pandemic. So if you were working, if you were often traveling for work as a salesperson, if you were going to conferences, if you could work from home when you were sick, all of those, you were practicing some level of autonomy. But as you go all the way up, and I think the very big top is kind of like nirvana, that actually means that everybody can be distributed and you can actually be working better than a traditional company, even though you are all working um, at your own time, at your own pace, and making all those decisions for yourself. So that's kind of the level of like pure autonomy there. But I like it as a way to kind of stretch your thinking about what is autonomous. And so we give a lot of, my co-writer and I, we give a lot of presentations on communication. The reason autonomy, so I think autonomy, we think about like, I don't know, autonomous robots and like autonomy and like industrialization, but really autonomy needs to be that you can actually do your work without having to be online with somebody else at the exact same time. That's how I think about it. And that usually requires a lot more written communication, a lot more documentation, a lot being a lot clearer on kind of deliverables and outputs. And sometimes that can sound like, oh, do you just care only about work? Doesn't that miss all the personal aspects? We can go into that thing later. But I think what's really valuable is all of a sudden you don't have to be at the will of somebody else for 50 hours every day and you can all of a sudden do your best work when you want to. And even with scheduling meetings, even if you're doing synchronous work, I work often in a pair. I co-wrote a book. I have synchronous meetings a lot with Allie, but there is something really nice about the fact that we get to set up our meetings when we want to. And so she lives in France, I live here. Our hours are different. We actually, I'm a night person and she's a kind of afternoon person. And so we could actually like define our own schedule. So even if you're working with another person, I would say we have a lot of autonomy because we get to make those decisions on our own. Some who are listening might be critics of your concept because they'll say, well, that's great if you're an entrepreneur or if you're young or these concepts sound great. I mean, autonomy is fantastic for somebody else's business and it won't work here. What would you say to the naysayers of these organizations? To a naysayer, I would say, just try one simple experiment. Just, I mean, what would it look like just to have a little bit more autonomy throughout your day? 
What would it look like if on Fridays you had a no meeting day? What would it look like if you created bands for your week of people should be synchronous and online for these four hours, but you give people flexibility? What if you move one meeting that you were always having and seeing, experimenting with what it could be if it was written? My recommendation is it doesn't have to be like a binary decision. You don't go from stage zero of autonomy to like the most autonomous company in the entire world where everybody is magically, seamlessly working independently. Like that doesn't happen. And like all it is, is it's a spectrum. And how can you give people just a little bit more autonomy? Because even just a little bit more autonomy can be very meaningful. At the core of agency and autonomy is employee experience. The reason organizations and employers are exploring autonomy more is because to some of the examples you provided, employees are demanding it. You know, employee expectations are shifting in a variety of ways. And one of the inflection points you talk about in your book is employee expectations shifting from having a manager as a supervisor to a manager as a coach and connector. How do we reskill managers to make this shift? There's this movie about Field of Dreams and the whole concept was like, if you build it, people, people will show up, things will happen, right? And I think that's how we've addressed work for the last kind of hundred years. If you have this office, you have butts in a seat, something's going to happen if they're there for 40 hours a week. But we were actually measuring kind of um, the success of our company based on things like proximity and FaceTime and just visibility, all those aspects. But I don't think those were super precise for what you were actually trying to measure. And so in this remote work place that we're in right now, I think we can actually get closer to measuring outputs. And so if you are a manager today, I think rather than making sure that pe there's butts in the seats and people are there and you're going around and checking to make sure that when people have left, if they're going out of the office for lunch, listening in on conversations, tapping them on their back, anything that reminds you of office space, you know, that whole kind of thing, you can move to an output oriented world where instead as a manager, what you should be thinking about is both short-term outputs and long-term outputs. So a short-term output would be What's the deliverable that we need to have for the end of the month? If you were to support the middle manager shift, you created a series of manager mantras. What are they? Yeah, so with these manager mantras, so we have mantras in our book that are specific to how can I make sure I'm showing up and supporting that security for my employees? That connection, like how can you make sure that you are uh, not only helping people feel connected to one another on a team and connected to you as a manager, but also connected to the like mission statement. There needs to be something that people feel like they're getting up in the day and that there's value to what they're doing. And so that's how we end up using a lot of these mantras or these kind of simple statements to ensure that you are thinking about the motivation of your employees. Well, speaking of social support and connection and the water cooler, we have a segment on the show that is our virtual water cooler. So imagine you and I meeting at this virtual water cooler and having a spontaneous conversation. These are five quick questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So just say the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. What time of day do you do your best work? Oh, 
Well, first of all, I love this question because I think that breaking the nine to five is all about working around your own energies. Well, this is this is part of why I like remote work because I am uh, a night owl without a doubt. There's actually three different chronotypes. We interviewed um, a professor at Berkeley, uh, Sahar Yosef, and she's excellent. She's a neuroscientist, but 20% of people are night owls, 25% of people are morning birds, and the rest, the majority of people, about 50% are biphasic. But as a night owl, it means my first energy peak is like 5 to 7 p.m. It's actually after traditional working hours. And actually my second energy peak is from like 11 p.m. to 1. And so, um, as mentioned, I do have a lot of autonomy now, so this is like a shift than what I used to do. Um, but I have been... Uh, going to bed much later and doing a lot of my work at night and I've been shifting and waking up later and then doing things during the day and that's actually how I'm the most productive. If there were no dress code, how would you dress for work? Well, I guess when I'm online and doing remote work, my favorite thing is kind of like business on the top, comfortable on the bottom. So right now, actually, I just took a Thai massage class and I learned how to do, I'm certified in basic Thai massage. I can give a 90 minute Thai massage, but I have these like massage pants on that like that's what I'm wearing right now, but I have kind of a business top. So that's kind of my favorite remote work thing, but I just like being comfortable. What is part of your daily routine that you look forward to every single day? But something I try to do every day is take a picture or find a quote or something in my life that feels special and sacred in some way to me. So yesterday I went on a walk last night and I took some pictures of some different flowers that I saw and a quote that I read in a book. So I would say that is kind of my daily practice of something I really look forward to. And then um, I am a huge, huge, huge reader, hence writing as well. Those are very like uh, directly linked. And so every day I read and I read a couple books a week. If you could have any job in the world, what would it be? Probably what I'm doing now. This has been like an evolution. Imagine you now have 25 hours in every day instead of just 24. How would you invest your extra hour? Ooh, <laughs> that's good. So, um, Right now, I already invest quite a bit in sleep. I'm a big uh, advocate of that. And so I do, uh, I take kind of naps in the middle of the day between work because I'm, I'm all about doing work in sprints. I actually think it's a lot more effective than trying to work in a marathon type format. If I had an extra hour and I was like very awake during it and very energized, I would... Uh, I'm writing a kid's book right now, and so I would do more of that, so really focusing on more creative work. Before we close, where can listeners connect with you and find your book? I am on LinkedIn, Tamara Sanderson. You can find me if you also add in remote works there. So I try to post pretty regularly on that forum. Uh, our website is remoteworksbook.com. <laughs> well, one last question before we close today. What is the only asynchronous lesson you will ever need. The only async lesson you ever really need to know is we go into, we, um, you basically need to address and set expectations. And we have kind of a cute formula for that in the book, but it's all about expectation setting. And you wanna make sure that people know when things need to be delivered, what needs to be delivered, who needs to be involved in the conversation. And then we ha we use the term wah wah. I don't like in like in that in that sound. It's like on Urban Dictionary. 
but essentially like wah wah means what happens if nobody responds because I think that is often the hold up in remote work you're like great well I sent this email I said we're gonna do this here's the timeline nobody's responded and so I'm still hurting these cats around the office or the virtual office right and so that wah wah is usually saying if I don't hear back from anybody or if you do not respond by this time, I'm going to still move forward in this way. And so I think that can be incredibly important so that you're not left hanging. Thank you to Tamara Sanderson, co-founder of RemoteWorks and co-author of RemoteWorks, Managing for Freedom, Flexibility and Focus for revealing how to work remotely without becoming distant today on success from anywhere. Because success is not a destination, Success is not a location. Success is available to anyone, anytime, anywhere.